All right. Good morning, Fairhill Church. Good morning. All right. It's an exciting day. Uh, we have with us uh, some representatives from Presbytery because Pastor Steve Coward is going to be installed today, which is exciting. It's making it official. Yeah, I know. You're like, what does that mean? Uh, that means uh, <laughs> he's officially recognized as one of our pastors as he's here with us uh, and that Presbytery has recognized his, his authority here. And uh, if that's not exciting to you, uh, that's what we're talking about today. So maybe it will be, maybe it won't be, but uh, we'll see what we can do. So uh, this week we're looking at uh, the connectional nature of the church. We've been talking about some of the foundations of the church, and we have to recognize first that, as we've been talking about, we're not just individuals kind of living the Christian life. We are one body as the church. And that church isn't just uh, us collected here in this building. It's also those who are kind of collected as other churches, united together. That the foundation of the church, the foundation that's laid in Acts is not individual churches, but one church. One church that is united together and that fights to, to preach and, and to promote and to protect the gospel of Jesus. And so that's kind of what we're talking about today. We're talking about uh, the interconnectedness of the church. And we see that most, uh, most defined in Acts 15, what we call the Jerusalem Council. And so we're looking at, okay, what is the Jerusalem Council? How does it typify the interconnectedness of the church? And how then does it uh, give this beautiful picture of what the church, when it's collected, can do? We're going to see that it, it protects the gospel and fights for the gospel with, with nuance and intricacy that is often lost in the day-to-day -day debates of individuals. And we're also going to see that they kind of give great wisdom to the body, to the church. They're not just kind of throwing out this, oh, like, yeah, grace, 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 or uh, simple answers. They're actually getting kind of intricate, which, for you all, it gets a little intricate. So we want to make sure we're, uh, we're seeing the nuance here, but kind of holistically, we're recognizing that we're part of something greater. And as a Presbyterian church, we represent that larger interconnectedness, I think better than any other denomination. And so we're going to talk about it. I want to make sure that you know kind of how we are connected together so that you would uh, rejoice in what that gift is to the church. All right, so let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll look at the scriptures. Father, we thank you for your church we thank you for the gift that it is. And Father, we, we recognize that uh, you in your greatness and in your holiness and in your wisdom uh, have given us this body to be a part of. And we ask that we would not um, simply be individuals, that we would fight our own battles, but Father, that we would instead live as part of this collective and rejoice that we are part of this larger body. And Father, I ask that um, you would work in your, your church universal, your church that's founded upon the, the teachings of the apostles and the gospel. Father, we don't just pray for our church. We don't just pray for ourselves. We pray that your church as a whole would proclaim the gospel truly and faithfully and that Jesus Christ the head and king of the church would be glorified beyond all others. So, Father, would we, uh, would we see our smaller part in that, and would you give us eyes to see the whole? 
We pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this is a, this is a pretty big passage. So we're going to take it in pieces, kind of slowly uh, take out some bites. But we're going to start by seeing the, the need for interconnectedness in the church. Why does it matter that churches aren't individual, but they can come together as larger bodies? Uh, starting verse 15, or sorry, sorry, chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Now, this is a context of uh, Paul and Barnabas. They're going out, and they're, they're missionaries. They're spreading the gospel of Jesus, especially to the Gentiles. Verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. All right, so what's happening? Paul and Barnabas, they're going about, they're preaching the gospel, and the Gentiles, for the first time, are, are hearing it and are receiving the Holy Spirit. This is the great turning point in the, the life of the church, in the history of the church. The Gentiles are coming into the church, and remarkably, they're doing it without the law. They're not preaching the law. They're preaching Jesus Christ, and believers have been filled with the Spirit. They've been, they're being baptized. They're being brought into the church. And then here comes this, these new teachers, new teachers who are calling for the circumcision of these new Gentile believers. And what happens? They have no small dissension and debate. No small dissension and debate. All right, that's where uh, Christians are we're told to be, have unity, to have peace. There's a time for dissension and debate, and this is the time to do it. When the gospel is at stake, especially not just for ourselves, and that's where we have this reputation as, well, oh, you're not supposed to fight about doctrine. These are just ticky-tack things that don't really matter. Why can't we just get along? Uh, it's not about ourselves. We're not fighting for these things for ourselves. We're fighting for them for the sake of the church and because, most importantly, as we do missions, what is the mission that we're, we're doing? What, what are we giving people? Now, you know I've been doing uh, history uh, studying for ordination. Some of you know that. Uh, I probably told you and complained about it, but <laughs> I love history. Um, now, what, if you look at the, the history of our denomination and, and where it's come from, so often disagreements come not because of just internal fighting, but no, it comes about missions. That all of a sudden, we're not giving people the real gospel or the true gospel anymore and that's where we say, you know, I know I can't be part of something that isn't giving people the truth, that isn't giving people the grace of Jesus Christ, that isn't giving people the cross. And that's where there's no small dissension. And at that point, okay, what do we say? We can say, you know, you know let's, just, let's just agree to disagree and we descend into apathy, or we can fight as individuals, but no. God has given him, given uh, 
us, Paul and Barnabas, these false teachers, has given them the church. And there's authority in the church. Authority invested in them and wisdom gifted to the church in the form of these, these larger bodies that can come together and can speak to these issues. Now, we might say, well, I, I, don't, I just want the Bible. Uh, yeah, they want the Bible too. And a lot of times, they're better at interpreting it. That's just the case. And throughout history, we, we stand upon so much of the, the collective wisdom and guidance of the church as a whole. Some of the things we hold most dearly, things like uh, the Trinity. The Trinity was debated in, amongst men who faithfully interpreted the scriptures, trying to prove that, yes, Jesus is God. Yes, he, he is truly human. He has a real will. He has a real human nature. He really did save us. He really did come. Our questions about salvation that those rose up who said, you know, it's just by works. We don't really need grace. And what happened? The, the collective church bat that out. No, no, it is always by grace, and it has only been by grace. The things that we hold to most dearly have been protected throughout history by the collective church coming together. We often use this, uh, right, I hear this, we, we talked a lot about it in seminary, you won't hear it, but uh, that we stand on the, sh the shoulders of giants. We stand on the shoulders of giants. And then we think that we know so much, and we think that uh, we have such wisdom, but no, we stand upon the wisdom of, of generations that came before us and were faithful. And therefore, we can see further than they ever thought that we would be able to. Now, how do we represent this now? And we're not having church councils. We represent this in, in our form of government, in the, the courts of our church. Now, we've been talking a lot about the session. That the session has been given authority over each individual body. And they are there to protect you as the people and to make sure that you know good doctrine. And if you have disagreements, you can bring it to them. You don't just have to throw up your hands and say, you know what, I, I can't, I don't know. Maybe it's not for me to know. No, bring it to them. Bring it to them. They're invested with authority to speak to these things. And then beyond that is Presbytery, who some of the representatives are here today. This is a collection of all of the, the, the authorities of these various churches, and they come together and oversee the various churches and the various sessions and the the churches themselves and the pastors to make sure that doctrine is protected and that the gospel is being preached. All right, this is a, a beautiful thing that is represented in our church. And then above that, all the presbyteries have accountability too. There's a thing called general assembly where all the presbyteries send representatives and they make decisions for the whole church and protect it. We entrust ourselves to those authorities. And we'll thank, we're thankful for them. And, we, and you, as individuals, you can present yourself to those authorities and look to their wisdom. Now, that is a great gift. And it's something that I think we as Americans and we as individuals don't really enjoy 
don't really believe in in some sense, but that is a great gift that God has given this church. Now, we're going to use that to then talk about, okay, what is the wisdom that they, they offer? And what's the wisdom of Acts 15? When they go, what do they get? All right. They get the gospel, and they get real Christian unity. They get the gospel, and they get real Christian unity. First, let's look at how this interconnected church supports the gospel of Jesus. Verse 6. The, elder, the apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus as they will. What was the gospel, the good news, of these false teachers? These circumcisers, all right, they were preaching the burden of the yoke of the Mosaic law. Just placing the law upon people and crushing them. Now notice what they're saying. Verse, chapter 15, verse 1. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a big statement. Verse 5. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. It's necessary. Now, as we see that, uh, alarm bells should be going off. If not, then we thank God for the authorities that know that their alarm bells should be going off. Because what are they saying? They're saying, uh, first, that the necessary piece to, to be included in this body is keeping the law of Moses. All right, that's one thing. And then they go even further. No, they go saying... Salvation requires obedience to the law. That without obedience to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. I hope saying it like that sets the alarm bells off, because what does Peter then remind the church? All right, verse 8. He reminds them, you know what? You were not given the law. These Gentile believers, when I came and preached them, I did not give them the law. I gave them the gospel, and they received the Spirit. And the Spirit is now the, the commanding force in their life, not the law. We have a living, breathing, active Spirit who is God in them. I didn't give them the law, and they, didn't, they don't need it. Verse 9, he preached to them not the law, but, but faith. But faith in Jesus, that salvation is by faith and faith alone. Verse 11, they were not saved by works, they were saved by faith. Saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus. And he reminds them, you know, this, is, this has been our experience of the gospel. We've been set free from the law. Why would we want to burden anyone else again? 
All right, we're going to take a little bit of a rabbit trail. All right, stick with me uh, to talk about the gospel. Worthy rabbit trail. All right, why is this so bad? This is not bad because circumcision is part of the ritual law of Moses, and you know what? That part of the Bible expired. All right, that is not the reason. It's not because, you know what, that's a ritual that passed away. No, it's because they're choosing any aspect of the law that precedes salvation and precedes faith and has anything to do with salvation. Now, some of you would say, yeah, you, you, circumcision, yeah, that, that has nothing to do with salvation. But if I said, is, is obedience to the moral law necessary to be saved? In order to be saved, you have to stop committing sins of, of lying or stealing or adultery. Then what would you say? We should just as adamantly say, no, you, that doesn't matter. The moral law doesn't matter either. It's all of the law that doesn't matter when it comes to salvation. That's what Peter is arguing. He's saying salvation is by faith. Salvation is by grace. Salvation is by Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by any of the law. Now, I think some of you aren't clear on that. And you think that parts of the Old Testament are no longer relevant, but the moral law is still this burden that's upon you, and you have to do it to be saved. No. The whole point is that we have freedom from all of the law. That salvation has nothing to do with those things. And only after we have received full, perfect salvation. By grace, by faith in Jesus. Only then will we ever talk about obedience. Now that's, that's a nuance. That's a nuance and that's a matter of clarity. But that's the difference between giving people... Uh, the real gospel of Jesus or giving them conditions to work their way there. And Peter and the church as a whole and all of these courts are set up to protect that gospel, that intricacy. And I want to remind you of the freedom that you have in that. Please believe that your salvation has nothing to do with your obedience. It has nothing to do with your works. And as soon as we start doubting that, then our works are totally going to fall off the cliff. Then we've totally missed all of the joy that is found in the gospel, and we'll misunderstand why this Christian life even exists. You are saved by faith, you have been covered in grace. And works should be a total afterthought to all of those things. Yes? Yeah. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Amen. All right. Good. Now, uh, it, took, it took Peter saying that, and sometimes that isn't said. But the hope is that when you gather enough of the church together, someone like Peter will rise up and say it. And by the Holy Spirit, uh, thankfully, in the history of church, they have and they do. All right, but then you have this, uh, this second statement. 
that, that alone would be amazing. We, we'll be content as ourselves with that. But James take it, takes it one step further. And what does he say? Uh, he has this great wisdom, verse 12. All the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done to them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with the, this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written, after this I will return and I rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. All right, what's he doing? He's using Amos 9. He's quoting it. Uh, he knows his scriptures and he's saying, you know what? God has done this. God has done this. This has been the plan from the very beginning. And the Gentiles are now part of the people of God. We don't get to debate that anymore. We don't get to put conditions upon that. If God wants them in, they are in. And they're in by the exact same standards as before. When we came by grace, they get to come by grace. When we came by faith, they get to come by faith. And having firmly established that, then he says, okay, now, if they are part of us, what do we say? If they are part of us, what do we say? And that's where he gives uh, this brief summary, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not be troubled, those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he's read every Sabbath in the synagogues. All right. If you thought the, the earlier part was nuanced, this is very nuanced. I want to make sure we, we understand the nuance here. This is not James saying, you know what, circumcision, that's a bad law. They don't need to follow this one. But I have four more better laws that are more important. Let's make them obey those ones. And if they want to be a part of this thing, if they want to be saved, they need these four. All right, so often that's been how this is interpreted. It doesn't make any sense. The whole point was grace. All right, what is he saying? He's saying instead, if these people are really part of us, and they need to be treated by Jewish believers as part of the body of Christ, then these four things are going to keep them from having real fellowship with their Jewish brothers. To express the unity, all right, they need to kind of help their Jewish brothers and not put stumbling blocks in their way. And these four things, these are like the, these are the pet peeves of the, the Jewish believers. Now, they're, they're pretty legitimate. They, we're not saying that these things are just arbitrary. But we're saying it's not, it's not so that they would be saved. It's so that the Jewish people would accept them and would sit down with them without just being too troubled and too upset and saying, you know, the whole time, how am I possibly sitting with this person who's committed these things? No. For the sake of unity in the body, these Gentile believers take up these, these four laws not to save themselves, but so that they can have real unity with their Jewish brothers. And that's what this is about. 
Now, I know we can say a lot more about that. I know some of you have uh, a history of trouble with these things. Um, please talk to me about those things. I, I, know, I know you'll want to talk about that more. But what's the point here? The point here is that that is, that is a beautiful nuance to say, you know what, first, there is no law that you have to submit to, but then, you know what, out of love for your brothers and to take up something that you don't have to take up, take up these four things and focus on these four things so that you can express your unity in the body. It's that kind of nuance that we need in the church. It's that kind of wisdom that we need in the church. It's that kind of sensitivity to to people's weaknesses and their strengths and writing, putting all of these things in the right order. And that's why we have authorities and we have those who come together and can fight for these things to preserve the gospel and then preserve the the unity and the love of this community. Finally, what is the result? What is the result of all this? The outcome is is the same joy that was before. There's joy once again. The restoration of joy to these new believers as they hear the message. Verse 22. And then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are the Gentiles of the Antioch and Syria. Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some people have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, It seemed good to us, having come to one accord to choose men and send them. All right, I'm going to summarize this. This gets really long. Uh, He sends out the message. They send out the message. This authority is then vested and sent out to the churches. And so verse 30, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. All right, when this is done well, when authority is used to protect the gospel and to unite the body together, it's the recipe for, for joy and encouragement. That is why God, God has given these authorities. That's why God has built his church such a way to preserve the joy and encouragement of his people. We've talked about how that is the kind of the overarching mission of, the, of our church and our, our vision is that we might have great joy in the gospel. These things bring great joy in the gospel. And so we, we entrust ourselves to these authorities. We, we rejoice in their decisions. We even present ourselves and say, hey, please, please speak your wisdom into my questions, into my life that we may have great joy and be encouraged. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, we have a great uh, a message of joy and encouragement today. Uh, we have representatives from Presbytery who will come and uh, 
install Pastor Steve Coward. Uh, but let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get into that part of the meeting. Father, we thank you that uh, you work through your body. We thank you that you preserve your gospel. Father, we are great sinners, and in our foolishness, we abandon your gospel, and we, we misinterpret it. And Father, we love placing burdens and laws upon people. And Father, we thank you that you, you draw us back. Would we not um, scorn the secondary means that you use, that you use the, the wisdom and authority and leadership of, of men in your church to, to carry forth the gospel? Father, we protect these things not for ourselves first, but for the mission and that we would have a good and joyous gospel to bring to the world. Would you... Uh, send us out with that great joy and encouragement and would be, be a, a joyous encouragement to others, we pray in Jesus' name.